It is so great to see everybody here this morning. My name is Antramika Knight, and I have the pleasure of welcoming you here, River City, to here to River City. Um, here at River City, we start each Sunday by reading one of the Psalms. Um, it is a way in which we connect to the global church. There are churches all across the world incorporating the Psalms and the readings from the lectionary into their service today. In the Psalm um, 118, many people are familiar with it. There are songs written around it. Um, and it's a good one just to reflect on as we get closer to Easter. And it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Then we're going to skip to verse 19, and it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteousness shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Say Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Blind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Can we bow our heads in prayer? Lord, thank you that you endure forever. Thank you that your love endures forever. Thank you that we have the opportunity to gather this Sunday with sisters and brothers to worship you, to pray together. Thank you, Father God, for the love that you provide us. You are a provider. You are a father. You are a mother. Father God, you have yes. been there when we felt lonely, been there when we felt happy. Thank you that you are unmoving and unshakable. We pray this Sunday, Father God, as we move closer to Easter, that we don't forget your sacrifice after this season, that this is a chance for us to become more intimate with you as we experience community, as well as pray for the things that we feel chained by or the things that you have broken chains upon. We love you, Lord, and we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as, as we're worshiping together and seeing our children walk around, preparing the way for the Lord, some understanding, some like, what am I doing? Some wondering why we have leaves. Some of you sitting there doing the same. So we, we speak into the future. We speak into what is coming. We're a people of resurrection. We're a resurrection people. We don't just believe things will be redeemed. We believe things will be resurrected. That turns it into to miracles and things like that. That's just not things getting better. That's dead things coming to life. That's craziness. And that's what we believe. So as we see our kids walking around and waving branches and us wondering and interacting with words from songs about things we don't yet see, but see also. 
we step into that role, Jesus, of resurrection people that speak into dry bones and areas and cities and families that are not yet resurrected, that you would come and be resurrection in every way. We boldly do that because with you, God, all things are possible. So a people who worship a Jesus in a sanctuary or a people who are sent, filled by Jesus to the cities and families. So Jesus, as we pray today, help us to remember that we are co-laboring for you and with you, that you have involved us to take this new land to co-labor to have a responsibility, to not just worship in here, which we love to do and we want to do even more, but to take it into the cities and families and jobs. So we're going to pray a few prayers together differently today. When I ask you an area or a thing or a people or a group or a job or something that needs to be resurrected, let's ask him with our words out loud. We're not ashamed, even though we bump into the fear of that. God, help us to be a vulnerable people. So as we pray today, is there an area or something we need to see the resurrection power of Jesus Christ permeate? You have a few moments to speak that out now. We specifically call out the family members in our lives that we've given up hope for. We label those people with the names you've given them, and we call out for them right now. Who are those people? We speak over the people who are in our lives that are our friends, that are hopeless, that are hurting inside, that are deeply depressed, that feel very alone. Who are those people? We speak over those in our lives that are broken in body and spirit, who are physically ill, and we ask you to come in and redeem and completely heal them. Who are those people? And we step before the cross individually, looking into our own house hearts and saying, are we those people that need to be resurrected today? Who are those people? We thank you, Jesus. We pray for this church and every other church in Smyrna, Georgia, God, Cumberland Community, First Baptist, First Methodist, First Anything Else, Square Church, Vinings Lake, Vinings Church, all of the churches in this city, we pray that your presence would be so tangible that someone wants to taste and see that you are good right now. We pray for the churches in Atlanta, Georgia, and all the other cities in America, and we ask that your spirit and presence would be so tangible that someone would want to taste and see that you are good, Jesus. We pray for the church all over the world today that's celebrating the risen Jesus right now, and we pray that your presence and spirit would be so tangible that someone wants to taste and see that you are good. And we thank you that we get to play a part in that. Not being the only answer, but being a part of a body that's global. Humbly stepping into our place. In Jesus' name, we love you so much. And everybody said, hallelujah, amen. Well, welcome. I am happy to see you guys. I'm happy to be up here. Um, 
I love Holy Week, and today is the first day of Holy Week. We've been building towards this throughout Lent. Um, um, and I, there's just so many things that have already happened this morning that are so good um, and so wonderful and so much that I think God is stirring in us. Um, but I love this quote, Fleming Rutledge, who is one of my favorite preachers. She's a female preacher, and she's brilliant. She calls Palm Sunday the Trojan horse of the Christian year. And I love that because it sort of comes in on you. You think it's one thing, and it turns out to be something else. And so I love sort of the contrast that happened. I even like the fact that it was raining because I feel like um, one commentator said that Palm Sunday is a Sunday of contrast. And we have, you know, the children walking in, and we're like, oh, that's so cute. That's so sweet. And it is, um, but what we fail to remember is that this journey for Jesus was not a journey of triumph. It was a journey to the cross. And so what we like to do, even on Palm Sunday, is we sort of, re we, we sort of forget the cross part. We're like, it's so great. It's Palm Sunday. Jesus is victorious. And then we jump right to Easter. We're like, he's risen, right? And there's this week in between that is super significant. And so that's what we're really, that's the journey we're on this morning is the journey to the cross. Because as we step into this story, that is the story we're stepping into. The triumph that was perceived by the people wasn't the triumph Jesus was even seeking. That wasn't the vision he was even casting. In fact, we've had... Um, so several, I mean, it must have been several months ago, we were doing a passage, we were talking about it in staff, and Josh was saying how, um, oh, it was um, when we started Lent, and it was about the, the temptation of Jesus and how the, the stones, you know, the temptation that um, I can turn these stones into bread. And Josh was saying there's some, something significant about stones. And we sort of have revisited that every week. And as we read this passage, Jesus says, um, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And we're like, oh, there's stones again. And then something clicked for me when we did one of the songs this morning, and it, the, it said that Jesus will become the cornerstone. I don't know if you guys intentionally chose that based on the Psalm 118. Did you really? I was going to say, if you did, that totally busts my... Uh... So they, what's interesting is that that phrasing appears in Psalm 118, which we read this morning. And it also shows up again um, in this idea of stones. And this is, this is what I think is happening. So for, in order for Christ to become the cornerstone, there are stones that will be torn down. This is a really hard word. This is not for the faint of hearted. And so what we see in this story, the climax of the Luke passage is Jesus weeping because he knows that in less than 100 years, Jerusalem will be leveled to the ground. The city of peace. Jerusalem actually means shalom or peace. So this very center of what they, we were talking about what the Hebrews, you know, they were waiting and they were waiting and they were waiting. The very center of what they thought would bring peace, where Jesus would bring peace, he did. He kept up his end of the deal, but it took a leveling. 
And we are stepping into that story this morning because true peace only comes by the way of the cross. And we have so many opportunities to see peace, to live out shalom, to vision cast for shalom, but it doesn't happen because we're not willing to go to the cross first. And so my question, our journey today is, do you know what peace is? Or is that something that needs to be leveled for Jesus to resurrect his vision of peace? What stones need to be leveled for us to enter into God's peace? That's where we're going this morning. So let's pray. God, we listen to the gentle rain. We are here together. We are asking for this journey that you are taking us on as individuals and as a body, this journey towards shalom, the full wholeness and reconciliation of all things. Will you make us brave to go there because that's the way of the cross? Jesus, will you stir in our hearts this morning? Will you speak clearly? Will we leave formed and changed to be your body out in the world? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to start with this passage, Luke 19. We're going 28 through 44. I actually added a couple verses on to the lectionary um, than what the lectionary uh, separated out. So if you'll read this with me. We had, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. 
but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your coming. Whew, good Palm Sunday, everyone. All right, I'd like for you to close your eyes. And I want you to find yourself in this text and also let this text find you. We believe that the word was made flesh and every interaction we have with scripture is a conversation with God himself. So I want to allow God to begin the work in your heart before I even unpack I want you to just put yourself in the story. What I love about these gospel stories is we can find ourselves in it. And I want you to imagine this scene as you are watching Jesus approach the city. What do you see? What do you hear? There's this electricity in the air that Jesus is coming. And I want you to think, you know that Jesus is approaching. I want you to reflect on your own expectations of who he is and why he is coming. As he approaches, who do you hope is with him who do you hope not? How have you defined the coming of Jesus and his kingdom? What expectations have you brought to this kingdom vision, to this vision of peace? Recognizing that we all are trying to impose our idea of peace and kingdom upon Jesus. You can open your eyes. I'm going to show you a painting. And I just found this representation fascinating. So this is a... Um, a painting done in 1912 by Wilhelm Morgner, um, who actually spent a while in 12 this past week um, staring at this and talking about it. Um, just want you to get a sense of even the what I just walked you through and even this painting, what you're bringing to this story. And where is Jesus in this picture for you? And I'll tell you that he's actually a couple of places. This is actually two different sort of representations laid on each other. This is expressionism, which means that the colors and the silhouettes are all 
supposed to do something to you inside of you. So in the front, you do see Jesus on a donkey. It looks very large, so that's okay. Um, and then see that dark figure in the back? So in the background, we see this other scene, a row of six orange and green figures flanking a central blue silhouette. The central figure haloed is an image of Christ. But instead of an emphasis on common identity, here he is marked by otherness and standing apart. He is the darkest of all the figures. He, is also, he also has multi-dimensional presence as his blue form saturates the donkey in front of him stands with the six next to him and passes through a red arched opening into the dark blue night behind the two scenes. He transcends chronology in this way to show that what he is about to accomplish in his, pass in his passion is a cosmic reality that transcends time and space. He is Christ yesterday, today, and forever. And the story of his entry into Jerusalem is also the entry into the mystery which continues to govern our reality to this day. The darkness of his form evokes apprehension. We know what is coming on Calvary. As we meditate on Christ's passion at the beginning of Holy Week, we face again the cross and all the violence leading up to it. We enter the passion with Christ in the hope of accompanying him through the empty tomb as well. And so... We were so happy <laughs> watching those beautiful little children, right? And that's good. And it's like Rachel said, it's both and, right? We have been saved, and we still need saving. And so let's sort of look at this story and see where we can journey together. So a couple of things, uh, background, um, is Luke is writing to Gentiles. He was very educated. And he wrote that way. And so he wrote to Gentiles, and he wanted to reveal Jesus as Messiah. So he actually incorporated uh, lots of Jesus' miracles to sort of support that claim. Um, and he also included lots of prophecy. So it's very hard to read Luke faithfully if you don't have an understanding of Israel's history and especially the prophetic literature. That's very important. And we see that at play in this scripture. Um, so let's sort of go through this together. Uh, there's three dramatic moments that I want to focus on. So you first have this dramatic moment of Jesus riding in on the colt. And then you have the dramatic response of the people, right, who are like, woohoo, this is it. And then you have Jesus in response to that. What does he do? Weeps. So Jesus is not like, oh, good, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you guys are with me. No, he is inside. He is torn apart, which almost doesn't make sense to us, right? Like, this is your moment, Jesus. This is it, finally. But no, that's not what's happening here. So this very dramatic riding into the city was very well thought out. One commentator even said that, um, you know, when Jesus said, to tell them um, the Lord has need of it, that it was like a pre, that he had pre-planned, he had found this cult ahead of time, that he had done all this planning, and that he had said to his disciples, essentially, I've already made arrangements. As soon as you say this, the guy that is going to know that it's me, and, and the whole plan will, will fall into place. That Jesus had this well-thought-out plan. 
And he knew this, that as a prophet, if people didn't listen to your words, prophets would do something dramatic. And that's what he was doing. Here he was saying, this will capture their attention. Because if I ride in on a cult, they're going to know that I'm claiming to be the Messiah. Not only that, but I'm riding in on a colt, which in history, a king who rode in on a horse was riding in for battle. And a king who rode in on a colt was riding in for peace, which nodes back to Zechariah 9.9, which prophesies this. So Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy. He was essentially saying, I'm it. And instead of sneaking into town, which he had done in the past, if you know the gospel story, he was trying to stay out of the limelight most of the time. And then now he's putting himself smack dab in the middle of the limelight, everyone's attention on him because he was making the claim, I am the Messiah. But he knew they're going to think this, this is what I'm bringing, but yet this is what I'm bringing. So it was a highly planned, dramatic act. Now, as I read the story, I always get really, when um, we get to the part of the, when he asks the disciples, I'm such a, um, like, I don't like uncomfortable situations, and I think if I were one of the disciples that had to go and, like, just take someone's colt, like, how terrified I would be. Like, going and be like, um, the master says that, like, Jesus, please don't send me. Send, send one of the other guys because I'm an Enneagram too. And, like, I don't want, I really don't want these guys to get mad at me because I'm taking their cult. That would make me very uncomfortable. So I, like, totally felt for these two disciples who had to just go and be, like, um, yeah, we're going to need your cult. <laughs> we were joking in um, staff meeting about how the, what the equivalent would be today. It would be, like, um, yeah, I'm going to need your car. Not only that, I'm going to need your car that's brand new and never been used. I'm just going to take your car. Jesus needs your car. So a little bit of an awkward situation. Don't you love how Jesus works with that? Um, but okay, so we have this dramatic entrance into the city. Um, people are thinking, oh, yeah, this is, this is it. It's it. It's, we've been waiting for this. Yep, it's coming. Um, Jesus is going to save the day. And they respond with this. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. So now the first statement, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, is Psalm 118.26, which we already read this morning, right? Except Luke adds king in. I mean, he add, the people were saying it, but that, that is the twist on the original scripture. And then they add, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens, which we just read was in, um, which was in Luke 2, when the angel came to proclaim that Jesus was here, he said, peace on earth and goodwill to men. So it's sort of like this volley. Like the angels are like, he's coming to you, peace on earth. And now the people are like, thank you so much, peace in heaven, back at you. And it's like this big, like, yay, there's peace everywhere. Jesus has come. We're so great, right? So now they think, oh, we've got peace on heaven. We've got peace on earth. We've got peace in Jerusalem. This is so great. But they don't realize that their vision of peace is only maintained by violence. Because we see that happen, right? We see that play out in the destruction of Jerusalem. 
This distorted vision of peace is why Jesus weeps. So now we have, for Luke, the climax of the story. Because the, the triumphal entry, and actually Luke doesn't show Jesus actually entering the city. Luke just shows the on the way. So the other gospels sort of fill in those details. But for Luke, the climax is Jesus' tears. That's the point in Luke's gospel. So let me read that part again. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, would you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in your sight because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is lament. Josh talked about lament last week. And I wrote this in my notes, so I'm assuming I was quoting you, but lamenting is mourning rightly. Jesus is lamenting. And this is the second time that he's lamented over the city of Jerusalem. That's only recorded in Luke. And it's only the second time in all of the Gospels that it is recorded that he wept. That's really, really important. I feel like that's something to pay attention to. The other time was Lazarus. This time, he's lamenting. Dr. Green says they are about to be crushed by their own. They, like Josh said last week, you know, he's talking about Egypt in the wilderness and how the people of Israel were saying, we'd rather go back. This is what we'd rather have. This is the things that God weeps for. Because out of our own selfish ambition, our disbelief, our lack of willingness, willingness to follow Christ to the cross, we actually choose the more cruel situation. And God in heaven, on earth, wherever he is, is weeping for that. He is torn up by that. We see the tears of God when there is needless pain and suffering. Fleming Rutledge says this, tears are eloquent, tears speak. Judges look for tears when they are looking for a reason to give a lighter sentence. Jesus' tears encompass the entire human tragedy. In the tears of the one man Jesus, God's complete solidarity with human pain, yes, but also with human sin, is shown. And yet, we do not know the time of our visitation. We don't want a crucified Messiah. And one way or another, we want to make Easter easy. This is the tragedy of our humanity. We sometimes don't want to abandon our visions of peace and our visions of power 
and our visions of the kingdom. And because of that, we could be crushed by our own choices. And for that, Jesus weeps because he has come to us. He has visited us and will visit us again and again and again. And he will call us to peace. And sometimes we just say no because we don't want the way of the cross. But by the grace of God, he always keeps his promises. Jeremiah 1.10 says, See, I have appointed you today over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and plant. So in this passage, obviously God was speaking to Jeremiah, but what I love after Jesus comes is we no longer interpret the prophets by Jesus, we interpret, no, we no longer interpret Jesus by the prophets. We now interpret the prophets by Jesus. Does that make sense? So now we look at this verse and we say, this is Jesus, right? So he had to uproot and tear down, destroy and overthrow to build and plant. And this is, this is I'm raising a tough theological question that we're not going to completely answer. I want this, I want you to wrestle with this question. What and if God has to uproot and tear down, what things must be destroyed and overturned in order to build and plant what he said? And this, this is really, I wrestled with this a long time. Um, when we come to this verse in a minute where it talks about um, Jesus saying that they are hidden from your eyes, I was like, what does that mean? Theologically, I need to know. Um, and we might, we just don't have exactly an answer, but we're going to wrestle with it this morning. So we see that in order for peace to come, right, Jerusalem was destroyed. That's hard. That's really hard. But God will still be faithful. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. So we're going to go back to this first verse 9 is what Jesus fulfilled by riding on the donkey. But then look at verse 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay, so we get that. That's been fulfilled, right? Now look at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak, hallelujah, peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Have we seen that yet? No. We still groan and wait in hope that this will happen. So the idea of the chariot and the war host and the battle bow, that's the whole arsenal of what they used in war. And so essentially the prophet saying there will be no more war. It will be shalom, full wholeness, full restoration, God with humans, humans with God, humans with humans, all of us in creation. Shalom. The vision that was cast in the garden is yet to be. And as a people of God, we are again in this tension, right? We're standing in between these two verses. And we're saying it's still going to happen. But we have to align with God's vision for peace, of peace. 
So are we willing to lay down our ideologies, our vision of the kingdom? Because his kingdom, again, is not a verification of what we believe it to be. We must let his vision undo ours. Let's look at Ephesians 2. I love, Ephesians is just money. Anytime you read Ephesians, it's just like, this is money. Good. Ephesians 2.12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And let me just um, throw this in there, that the, the Greek word for peace used in the, um, in the New Testament, it's like Iran, I don't know how to say it exactly, but it's, it's always one that they're like, we don't know how to translate this. But it's sort of like this idea of entwining, and it's like putting back together that which was broken, which is the, that's the Greek word that corresponds with the idea of shalom in the Old Testament. So what I love about this is it's, the, at that time you were separated, what, is, what does Jesus do? Brings us back together, right? Okay, so 13, but now in Christ, Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. I want you guys to say that with me. For he himself is our peace. So good. He is it. That is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new way, right, in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself, here it is again, being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together. Remember, he never tears down without building up. Built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So lastly, how is peace hidden from you? I told you that verse that just gave me such grief this week. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So I was like, why? Like, what? So I was, I was on, like, a rabbit trail. I was, like, I, I was on a hunt for, like, what this means for things to be hidden. Like, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to solve this mystery. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to tell people. We will all have this wrapped up about why God hides things. And turns out there's no answer. Because we don't know yet, right? We know in part. We prophesy in part. But so there, it seems in Scripture that there are times that things are hidden supernaturally, that God actually hides things from us because it's not the time we wouldn't get it. Which we see this a lot in the Gospels when people didn't make the connection 
that Jesus was the Messiah, right? It was it, actually in Luke, the idea of being hidden happens a ton. Like it was hidden from them, it was hidden from them, it was hidden from them. Like why would God hide things from us? Like just tell us. Just make the whole thing easier. And the reality is we probably can't handle it. So supernaturally, God might, and we see this in the story of the disciples at Emmaus. If you know the story of Jesus walking with the two disciples, post-resurrection, they're having a good old chat, and they don't know it's Jesus, and then they sit down and break bread. The story's so good. And then, like, God opens their eyes. Oh, it's Jesus. So we see there's times where things can be hidden from us for, for our own revelation, for our own good. But it seems in this passage that things are hidden because of their own stubbornness and the hardness of their hearts, that they literally can't see because they won't choose to see, that the visitation has come, but they they don't choose to see it. This is the way and the place that we come to today. If you guys will stand. As we go into ministry time, I hope you're wrestling. Um, I think sometimes where, um, as preachers, and I felt this this week, I wanted to, I wanted to tie this message up in a neat little bow. I love my like. This is my thesis statement, and these are my three supporting statements to support my thesis statement. And everyone will walk away. And I could not get there. Because I was wrestling all week with this. And then I realized this is what's supposed to happen, right? We wrestle, we chew on God's word together. And that's okay. Then we, then we have to wrestle with it. And we see where is God moving us as a people? Because especially with everything God's called us to do, how we are called to speak vision for the community. We have to go before God and say, is this peace being is this peace hidden from us? And what needs to die? What stones need to be leveled in order for the true vision of peace to be resurrected? So we are wrestling with this as our body, but individually. Is peace hidden from you? Do you recognize Jesus as your peace? Are you in the multitude saying, Woo, good times. Peace on heaven, peace on earth, peace in Jerusalem. And we get to do that post-resurrection, right? I'm not trying to be a total uh, downer today. But I'm wondering if we're on that donkey with Jesus if that's where we're called to be. Bravely walking into what we know is the death of something. Because something needs to die in order for us to move forward in this. We get that opportunity day after day after day. We take up our cross. And at the other side of the cross is freedom, is peace is shalom. So let's pray.
Jesus, we recognize that peace cannot be found apart from the journey to the cross. So what for our community, what does this mean, God? Holy Spirit, we want you to speak to us. What? What does this mean as we try to embody and follow Christ? As we try to live out faithfully what it means to be disciples of Jesus? As we try to cast vision to our friends and neighbors and community for shalom? We don't want your vision of peace to be hidden from our eyes. We want to bravely walk and move towards it. Will you reveal today what might be hidden, what might need to find its way to the cross so that we might find true peace and freedom? Just one more quote to read you. Jesus rides no high horse, just a lowly colt. He chooses to enter a deadly situation without force or protection. He gives himself freely and without reservation. This is a prophetic act, a sign of God's vulnerable love, which risks everything and promises to gain all. This is the means by which God creates peace. So for the next few minutes, just go to Jesus. Come and receive prayer. You need someone to be with you, stand with you. And then we'll close out in a minute or two. Jesus, we're collectively thankful that you provided us with a body to wrestle through all of this with, to come together when one of us is down, another is not to celebrate together, to mourn together, but to all draw closer to you, Jesus. We just ask that you would go with us this week. Encourage our spirits to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. And please visit our website at rivercitysmyrna.com.